We're going to continue with the study in Philippians chapter 3, and we are going to read uh, a good little chunk tonight, verses 2 through 7. Um, again, this is Paul. He's responding to the church at Philippi. He's in prison in Rome, you know, a long way away, and he is just coaching them along this budding church. And um, here we're going to see Paul give some pretty, at least in the beginning, a pretty stern warning. He picks up in verse 2, he says this. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those manipulators, or excuse me, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. He says, watch out for those people. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul's not shy, okay? He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Tonight, I want to uh, talk to you in this segment about two different covenants. And um, there are, these are very general terms here when I say the old covenant and the new covenant, um, because I realize that there are very specific things with the, with the old covenant. But I want to talk to you specifically about circumcision. Now, circumcision is the physical removal of the foreskin of a male, okay? Most of us are, are familiar with that, uh, living in our nation, because we, in, in our nation, we have Judeo-Christian values, and circumcision was just kind of a part of that, um, a part of our culture. But the first time that we hear circumcision in Scripture is in Genesis 15, and the Lord is speaking to Abram at that moment, who will later become Abraham, and the Lord tells Abram, that I'm going to make a covenant with you, and circumcision is going to be a physical sign for the people of Israel, okay? It's, it's a physical sign of the covenant. Um, now, the word circumcision means to cut around, okay? And obviously, you can use your imagination there, but basically what the Lord required was that Male children on the eighth day of their life, they be circumcised. Um, there is a lot of speculation. You can even read uh, those of, of Judaism, even today, who, you know, why did the Lord require it on the eighth day? And there are all these speculations. Ultimately, we don't know. There are some that think that, um, you know, the, the child is, he has enough strength to survive, something like that. Um, there are others that, that believe they're just tremendous health benefits, um, when you talk about, um, you know, certain infections and all these different things, um, there is one Hebrew tradition or Jewish tradition, I, I guess, guess I should say, where there is a belief that the Lord had them children circumcised early in their life because when blood was cut, it was a sign of atonement. 
okay? And so there, there are all these speculations, all these different things, but we, we really don't know. There, there are some wild things like, um, you know, Jewish mothers, especially in, in ancient times, they would read the, the entire uh, uh, Torah to their, to, their, um, to their child in the womb, and there is this belief in, in some camps that believe that an angel just before the child is born um, comes and touches the child, removes the child's memory, but um, the angel only does that like on the eighth day. And so the child remembers nothing of the circumcision, but also nothing of what the mother had done. I mean, just some, some really bizarre things out there. Reality is we don't, we don't really know, but we know how God used it. He used it as a physical sign for a covenant that he was breaking with Israel. And so for so many years, um, Jewish people were the only people who were circumcised, especially in ancient times. There's uh, a ton of proof of this, but, but one of the biblical truths that we find or, or proofs that we find in this is uh, found in 1 Samuel, uh, I think it was chapter 18, maybe 14, where uh, David, he goes to Saul, who is the king, and David's just this mighty warrior, and he goes to Saul, and David wants to marry Saul's daughter, and Saul, who already had it out for David, he didn't want David to live, he said, well, David, you can have my daughter, but you're going to pay for her. I want you to go to the Philistine camp. I want you to slaughter a hundred Philistines and bring their foreskins back to me, right? That sounds super weird, super gross. I don't really understand it, okay? And so David's like, I want to marry her so bad, this is what I'm going to do. So he goes, he takes a few guys with him. They slaughter not 100, but 200 puts them in a sack, he goes and he throws them right at Saul's feet. He says, is this good enough, right? And so, but that story, there's a lot to it, it's very layered, but the point of what I'm trying to say is that is a proof that the Jewish people for, for so many, I mean, hundreds of years, they were the only people who performed circumcision on, on their males. And part of that was by God's design. He wanted his people to be distinct from the rest of the earth. And so, um, it's, a, it's a physical sign of an old covenant, but the old covenant is based off of the law, the, the Mosaic law. It's based off of works. Um, unfortunately, um, circumcision became less of a spiritual thing as years went on, and it became more of a national identity thing. For, for many, many Jewish people. So even the most, you know, pastors spoke this last week about um, so many wicked kings in Israel. I mean, they, they did not, some of them even hated the Lord our God, but as a child, they were circumcised. So it really wasn't about their spiritual standing before God. It had nothing really to do with, in their mind, spiritual standing because they were away from God. So over time, unfortunately, for the Jewish men, many of them, it just became a thing that they did because they were Jews, right? So, so in some ways, there was a loss of significance, okay? And so what ultimately ended up happening is that um, Jesus ends up coming and he institutes what we call the new covenant, okay? And this shouldn't be surprising to anyone who had ever studied the prophets, right? Because several of the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
they all speak to this idea. They say there's coming a day where the Lord, he's going to cut a new covenant with his people. They shall be my people, I shall be their God. These, this kind of language, he speaks of it through the, the Old Testament that Messiah is going to bring a new covenant. But unfortunately, when Messiah showed up, not everybody believed, okay? This is what Jesus said. You remember on, on the night when he was betrayed, he is sitting at the table. He's reclining at table. They're about to have supper, and Jesus institutes communion, the Lord's Supper, for the very first time. And what does he say? Uh, Luke 22 records this. After supper, he took the cup, and this is what he said. This cup is the new covenant, and this is what he says, in my blood. So in other words, the covenant is no longer based off the blood of people. This is now based off the blood of God, right? And so this covenant is in my blood and it is poured out for you, okay? So it's not just a thing that we do. There is a purpose and there is an intent behind this. And so when Jesus shows up, he cuts a new covenant in that moment at the Last Supper, okay? His death, burial, resurrection, all of this combined. This is the new covenant. This is the gospel of grace, no works. It is, it is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the door that we walk through. And so the church takes off in the first, in the opening books of, or the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you see the the church is exploding. You want to see some awesome stuff. Just read the first 10 chapters of, of Acts. It's powerful, powerful stuff. But what ends up happening is that you've got um, this growing amount of Jewish people who were coming to faith in Christ. And then you have this growing amount of what the Bible calls Gentile people who were coming to faith in Christ. Okay, Now, just if you're a new Christian or whatever the case is, when anytime you see the word Gentile in the Bible, it basically means anybody who's not a Jew. Okay, so if you're here tonight and you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile, okay, I'm not Jewish. And so you've got this growing number of all these Jews who are getting saved, and then you've got this growing number of all these Gentiles who are getting saved. And ultimately what, what ends up happening as you approach Acts chapter 15, there's a moment in history that is, in my opinion, in my opinion, it is probably the most pivotal moment of, of Christian history outside of the resurrection. And this is what happens. You have these Jewish people who have followed the Mosaic law. They followed circumcision, which was the sign. It was like the thing that you do if you are a Jew, right? Well, they come to faith in Jesus. Well, all of a sudden, a lot of these Jewish men are going to these Gentiles who have never been circumcised, right? They, they don't have the physical sign of the Jews. And so these Jewish Christians start going and they say, listen, you can be a Christian if you want to. You can have access to God and heaven when you die. You can have access to all this, but you've got to be circumcised. And so all of a sudden in Acts 15, what you begin to see is you, you begin to see this gathering. It's called the Council at, um, excuse me, the Council at Jerusalem. And so all of the, the leaders of the church and the apostles, they all gather in Jerusalem and they're meeting for days and they're having discussions, they're having all these things. And this is what the one thing they're trying to figure out. Do we still require people to be circumcised or do we not? And the reason it was such a pivotal moment in church history, this is the reason. Because so many people just kind of thought of what they called the way or the, the new Christian faith, so many people just thought, well, this is just a, a new sect of Judaism, 
This is kind of like, you know, the Pharisees kind of splintered off and did their thing and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes. Maybe this is just another group that practices Judaism, but what they didn't understand was this is something way, way, this was a complete paradigm. This was not the old covenant kind of massage. This was a new covenant, right? And so the whole issue was, what do we hold people to? If they come to faith in Christ, do we hold them to the requirements of the old covenant or are we bound to that in the new covenant? And so this is kind of uh, how Acts chapter 15 unfolds. Uh, chapter 1 says this, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they were teaching people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine stopping somebody at the door of our church and they, pastor gives this tremendous altar call and they come and they're weeping and they're repenting and they're acknowledged they're a sinner and they welcome Jesus and they go to walk out and somebody stops them, the usher stop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey man, high five. I think it's great. You gave your life to Jesus. You've repented. So much respect. But if you really want to be saved, we need you to step in this room and be circumcised, right? Can you imagine? Listen to me. That is what was happening. They were stopping people saying, you cannot be saved until you are circumcised. And I, I'm just going to tell you, if, if you're a Gentile person living in that day, you're a 35, 36-year-old man, the idea of circumcision is not very pleasant, right? And so there are all these things that are transpiring. But listen, it, I know it is funny. It is funny because it's such a, it's such a delicate thing. But listen to me, this is huge. This was world shifting and world shaping for the church. Again, I believe it was outside of the resurrection of Christ. I believe this is one of the most pivotal moments for the church because what Christianity was going to become was either another sect of Judaism in the old covenant or it was going to become a new covenant in the, in the minds of, of people. And so all this gathering happens in Jerusalem. James, the brother or the half-brother of Jesus, shows up. This is the same James that kind of mocked Jesus early on in his life when he was teaching and claiming to be Messiah. James was kind of like put him at a distance. He was like, look, man, this dude's crazy. I don't know what's going on. Well, now all of a sudden after the resurrection, James is, is all in. And he is the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Ultimately, he ends up giving his life for this, right? Ultimately, James is thrown off the temple, right? Like, Several, several, I mean, a long way off the temple. His body is maimed, but he's not dead. And they come, they, they finish the job by stoning him. I mean, he gave his life for this gospel because he was so convinced of it. Well, James is the leader at the church of Jerusalem. And so all these apostles and all these leaders, all of these, these, these uh, high-ranking church officials, they come together. They have this meeting. And this is what, this is what scripture says in verse 10. And so Peter got up and he addressed them. He addressed the entire council. Now then, he gives this little speech. I didn't go all into it, but this is the end part of it. This is what he says. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are saved. So Peter gives this dramatic speech. And again, I just give you the tail end of it. But he's saying, why would we burden them and say they can't be saved 
with rituals and laws and all these things that we couldn't even live up to. Our great ancestors couldn't even live up to. We've been given a gift of grace. It's not by our works, and we can't require works of them if God hasn't required works of us. And so Peter gives this tremendous speech. The Bible says uh, Paul and Barnabas, these, these amazing missionaries that are doing so much work, they come to Jerusalem. They begin giving testimonies of what God's done among the Gentiles that are not circumcised, Romans and just so many uh, Greeks and all these different things. And so the Bible says that, so James then finally, as the leader of the council, he's listened to what Peter has to say and what Paul and Barnabas and so many leaders, they've given their input for and against. And the Bible says that James stands up and James makes a judgment. He says that, he says, this is my judgment. In other words, this is the way that it's going to be. He brings out the scripture and he begins to talk about the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And he says, because of this and because of what Christ has done, James said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's my judgment. Now, I want you to notice the brilliance of spiritual leadership in this moment. Notice the brilliance of it. James is going to be the one making the decision. I mean, in his wisdom, he surrounds himself with wise men who can help him make a decision. He's not a dictator. But he goes and he says, I'm going to hear both sides. I'm going to hear what Peter has to say. I'm going to hear what Paul has to say. And then we're going to get the scripture out and we're going to compare everything that everybody's saying. We're going to compare it to the scriptures and see what the Holy Spirit has to say. Later on, the, this, in, in just a moment, what you'll hear is that the Bible says that James, he writes a letter to the Gentile churches expressing this news that you don't have to be circumcised. You can be saved because this new covenant isn't about what you do or don't do. It's about the work that Jesus has done. And as he's writing the letter, he says, we as a council, we got together and we discussed it and we determined that it sounded good to us and it sounded good to the Holy Spirit. So listen to this. He is, he is weighing everything that's going on. He's not just instantly dismissing. He's measuring against Scripture. He's discerning what the Spirit of God says. But then he makes a leadership decision based off of all those layers of decision-making. It's a brilliant move in, in spiritual leadership. And so then the apostles, the elders, and the whole church, what they decide to do is they draft this letter, a real short letter, and they just start blitzing it out to all the Gentile and the, and the Jewish churches that are existing. This is what a part of it says. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds with what they said. It seemed good to the, to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond, and then he gave them a couple of instructions. And so in that moment, you have this beautiful paradigm shift of, a, of, of the church. Jesus has already instituted the new covenant, but this is his younger brother stepping up to the plate saying, no, what big brother said is true and it's worthy. And this is the direction that we're going, a powerful, powerful paradigm shift to the church. Paul writes later, after, after all this gathering, later he writes to the Romans, he says this, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't say their body's right with God. He says their heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely by obeying the letter of the law, but rather it's a change of the heart produced by the spirit and a person with a changed heart seeks praises from God, not from other people. Oh, 
right? I mean, just so good, so good. He's saying, it is not about what you circumcise on your exterior. It's about what you allow the spirit to circumcise on your interior. That's the development. That's the true sons and daughters of God, a powerful, powerful moment. And so there's this enormous explosion of freedom. And then the church begins to grow again because now they are fully embracing the new covenant. They have stepped away from, from trying to obey the law and they've stepped into an era of grace where the spirit produces holiness. Um, but what's interesting is that, that Paul in all of his wisdom, he doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just say, well, this is how it is. And you know, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there is some of that language that happens depending on who he's talking to. But I want you to understand that Paul understood the sacredness or, or at least how sacred it was in the hearts of Jewish people. I mean, they weren't just, I mean, they were trying to please the Lord by circumcising their children or even asking these Gentiles. I believe they were really trying to please the Lord with it. And so Paul understanding that, when he kind of brings up into his ministry this young guy named Timothy, right? Timothy, the Bible says um, his mother is a Christian, his grandmother is a Christian, and they're, they're Jewish, okay? His mother's lineage is Jewish, but his father's lineage is Greek. And so that means as a male child born to a Greek father, Timothy, as a young man, probably in his late teens, early 20s, he's uncircumcised. And so Paul takes Timothy into the ministry after all this is already said. After Paul is a leader and James is a leader, they have said, we're not going the way of forced circumcision anymore. It's not about your work. It's about the work of Christ. He brings young, young Timothy up, a bold, powerful leadership move again. And he says, listen, Timothy, I know what I'm about to say is going to be harsh. It's going to be hard to hear, but you've got you to hear my heart in this. I don't want our ministry to be hindered by circumcision to the Jewish people we're trying to win to the Lord Jesus. So I'm asking you, Timothy, as a, as a young man, I'm asking you to be circumcised so that it won't be a hindrance to those who need to hear the gospel. And Timothy humbly submits to that powerful notion. And because of that, there's no hindrance. So it's not like Paul and James have this dictatorship going on right? They understand how important it is. So much so they're willing to take a 20-year-old kid and ask him to be circumcised just so that there's no blockade between them and the gospel, you know, to, to other Jews. It's really powerful, powerful stuff. So to wrap it up, it was out with the old, okay, out with the old covenant, not to be disrespectful, but I mean, it, it was an old covenant. And then it's in with the new, Okay, and what I mean by that is Jesus obviously instituted this, this new covenant um, that doesn't really require a physical sign. It's, it's a spiritual, our covenant is, is spiritual. And there are some people that have suggested that water baptism is the sign that replaces the physical sign of circumcision, right? And so let me, let me explain. There, the people that would believe this, and, and I, I kind of lean this way. I'm not, this is one of those, oh, we can negotiate. I'm not like super committed to this, but, but listen to the, to the comparisons here. In circumcision, it's the old covenant. In water baptism, it's new covenant. Circumcision is a physical sign. Water baptism is a spiritual sign. Circumcision is about law and works. Water baptism is about love and grace circumcision is more, remember it kind of evolved or devolved and it became more about social status where water baptism is about spiritual standing. 
See, a person who gets water baptized, and this is one of the reasons that, that we don't baptize infants. It's because we believe that infants haven't had the, the opportunity to make the choice to choose Christ for their own. And so you're, you're in this place now where, you know, little ones, in, anyway, okay. So the point is this. This is the way that somebody said it. One time someone made this statement. They said, a person born under the old covenant received the sign of circumcision, the physical sign of circumcision. A person born again under the new covenant receives the sign of baptism, Right? Now, let me be crystal clear. Baptism does not save your soul, okay? However, it is a critical sign for a believer to embrace. It is not something that we should quickly dismiss. It's one of those things, you know, we're quick to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? And he never got baptized, and I'll see you today in paradise. And I believe we'll meet him in heaven. I believe that. But if we're not careful, we take that exception and we make it the rule and say, well, we don't need to be water baptized. You need to be water baptized. If you are walking in faith, it's an issue of obedience. It's an issue of obedience because this is what Christ committed. And in the first century church, the first few hundred years, water baptism was closely associated with salvation. I mean, there were many that believed if you haven't been water baptized, like if it's been weeks and you've been a Christian and not water baptized, I'm not so sure you're, you're saved, right? I mean, it was that important. It was that monumental uh, in the first century mind. Um, when, when the, the, they would bring people into the homes and they would have home church, they would open the scriptures and they would read the scriptures, they would explain the scriptures, but if a person was in the group and they weren't water baptized yet, they would dismiss that person and then they would receive communion without them. In other words, if you weren't water baptized, you couldn't receive communion. That's how powerful, it, now I don't think that's right, I'm just saying that's how, how much it was in their minds. And we got to remember, it was big in the mind of John the Baptist. He ushers in this era, this new era that the new covenant's coming, and he's ushering it in with water baptism. Jesus, you know, um, is, is doing it, and he, he goes even at the end of his, of his life as he's about to ascend. What does he say? He says, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, you look at how many people are spirit baptized and water baptized, it'll blow your mind. Do a study on that. So the, the, first, the first Christians, they believed so much in the sign of baptism. It was a really, really powerful thing. And so everything that we've talked about tonight with, with circumcision and, and, you know, not so much water baptism, but, but with the, going from the old covenant to the new, this is Paul, again, in Rome, reminding the people in Philippi, listen to me, guys. This, I, I get it, I respect it, I respect the old covenant, but it's a new day, baby. And it's not about what you do on the outside that makes you righteous before the living God. It's about what Jesus did on the cross that makes us stand in right relationship with God. And man, I thank God for that. I thank God for that, and we all should. Amen? Amen. Amen.